welcome to the worship service at the Seventh-day Adventist Church in Hayward, California, a multicultural church in the San Francisco East Bay that worships on the Seventh-day Sabbath, Saturday. The ministry of the Word by Pastor Paul Penno is the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ to forgive sin and save from sin by his cross and ministry as priest in the heavenly sanctuary the third angel's message in verity. Join us now as the service is in progress. One day, Farmer Fleming, a Scotch, Scotchman, poor fellow, was trying to make a living, and he was out on his farm roaming around, and he heard this cry coming from the bog, and here he discovered a little boy who was up to his armpits in this black muck just terrified, screaming, struggling to free himself from the bog. And Farmer Fleming reached over and saved this young lad from a sure, uh, slow, and cruel death. Well, the next day, a fancy-looking carriage pulled up in front of the Scotsman's uh, rather sparse cottage, and out stepped an elegantly dressed gentleman. And he introduced himself to the farmer as being the father of the boy that he saved the previous day. And he said, you know, I want to repay you. You saved my son's life. And Farmer Fleming said, no, I can't take any payment for that. I'm just glad to be able to save him. Um, And then at that point, the farmer's son came up and stood by his father. And the nobleman said, well, is this your son? Yes, the farmer said proudly. Well, the nobleman said, I will make a deal with you. Let me provide him with a level of education that I would provide for my own son, and if he's anything like his father, he will no doubt grow up to be a man that we will both be proud of. And so he agreed to this deal. Well, father, our fa- far- Farmer Fleming's son attended the very best schools sponsored by the nobleman, graduated from St. Mary's Medical Hospital in London, and he went on to become a well-known throughout the world as the noted Alexander Fleming who discovered penicillin. Years afterward, the same nobleman's son, who was saved from the bog, was stricken with pneumonia. Who saved his life this time? Penicillin. The name of the nobleman was Lord Randolph Churchill. His son's name was Winston Churchill. What estimate should we place on ourselves? How should we evaluate ourselves? I'm rather ashamed of the title that I put on this message today, self-interpretation. But how should we interpret ourselves? How should we see ourselves? In Scripture, it says in Philippians chapter 2, verse 3, Let nothing be done through strife or vain glory, but in the lowliness of mind, let each esteem other better than themselves. There's a growing deception out there in Christian counseling and throughout the Christian world as well as society. It is the false gospel of self-esteem, which is incompatible with the biblical gospel of the cross of Jesus Christ. And increasingly, the counseling mentality is that 
Well, you know, low self-esteem, if a person has a low self-esteem, why, that is the taproot. That's the root cause of a teenager's deciding to give it up before they're married, or a housewife always being in the dumpster. In fact, prominent Christian personalities can be heard to claim that society's greatest problem is that of low self-esteem and that everything from abortion to school dropouts to teen pregnancies to rape to robbery and poverty can be solved if only we will help people to esteem themselves more highly, to love themselves more and more, and to realize their great self-worth. Robert Schuller has made a living off of this, building the Crystal Cathedral. He has been proclaiming the gospel of self-esteem for well over 40 years, He sets man rather than God in the forefront. He ascribes man's resistance to grace, to a lost sense of self-worth, and he thinks that we should tell sinners that they are worthy rather than unworthy. James Dobson has built a whole industry of Christian counseling on self-esteem. The theme of his book on how to raise a child hide or seek how to build self-esteem in your child is increasing the child's self-esteem. He says, it has been my purpose to formulate a well-defined philosophy and approach to child-rearing which will contribute to self-esteem from infancy onward. The self-esteem gospel, which has become so popular throughout the 20th century and the first part of this century, has been a subtle deception of Satan. He has perfected the art of sophistry in convincing Christians that before they can love love others, they must first love themselves. In fact, I've even written it in local publishing houses that before a person can appreciate God's love, they have to first of all love themselves. And that is a subtle twist of the words that are found in the great commandment. And I looked in the concordance, and this is, these are words spoken by Jesus and also uh, written by Moses way back in Leviticus where it says, Love thy neighbor as thyself. You've read those words, haven't you? Love thy neighbor as thyself. Think about those words with me for a moment. If Satan can get Christians to think that self-love, self-esteem is an essential part of the gospel, then Satan has defeated the principle of the cross. The cross is the revelation to our dull senses that God himself is self-denying. Satan has perpetually accused God of self-exaltation, of self-love, that God asks of us more than he requires of himself. The cross has forever settled the issue of God's self-denying love. In fact, Jesus loves you more than he loved himself. That's why he gave himself, and therefore, how you interpret yourself must be seen in light of the cross. It's not self-love, but the respect that Jesus pays 
for your soul, although it's only worth $1.99 in chemicals, is to be evaluated by his life that was given for you on the cross. So we talk about self-respect and not self-love or self-esteem. And we evaluate ourselves, we interpret ourselves in view of the cross. Now that issue of self-love plays out in the final crisis, which is just upon us. If Satan can get us to buy into the self-esteem movement, then he knows that if we're centered on self and self-love and self-motivation, that we're going to cave in just like that over the issue of the mark of the beast. Because self is all important then. The cross is not the motivating principle of the life. The love of self will become the prime value over loving God and neighbor in the great controversy. In fact, the self-esteem gospel, listen to me carefully, the self-esteem gospel is one of the evidences that evangelicalism and Protestantism and Catholicism is fallen, is fallen. Babylon is fallen, is fallen. One of the evidences. There has been no restoration of the true agape in popular Christianity. The motivation of the cross and its love in terms of the gospel. There's a woeful perception of the cross of Christ in Christianity at large. And this popular trend has leached into our circles to the extent that we have bought into the self-esteem movement. Listen, the Bible says that every one of us are born into this world natural-born self-lovers. We're natural-born, self-centered lovers. And it's a contradiction of terms to say that innately we are incapable of loving others as ourselves. A self-centered person is incapable of loving others as himself. So the only way that this commandment of Jesus, to love thy neighbor as thyself, can be understood properly is through the prism of God's agape. God's love is self-giving. It led Christ to self-denial. It led him to the point of giving his life for his enemies. It was Jesus who spoke those words, Thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. It was God who filled those words with their proper meaning in Romans 8.32. He that spared not his own son, but delivered him up for us all. If one wants to talk about loving oneself before he can love his neighbor in the context of self-giving agape, then it means to prefer harm to oneself over harm to others. It means the outpouring of one's own life in order to preserve the life of another, even his enemy. It means evaluating the life of another as more valuable than his own life. Because that's how Jesus saw it. Jesus did not value himself more than he valued you. He gave up all of his riches and became poor that you might become rich. It's only as one is truly dead to all self that others are valued in the light of the infinite life which was given for them. 
there's a world of difference between self-respect, which is seeing ourselves in light of the cross, and self-esteem, which is self-love. Self-respect is a healthy, God-given, sanctified consciousness of common sense, and the other is a sinful sense of self-importance and pride. One is that blessed fruit of grace that teaches one not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think. In fact, I'd like for you to open your Bibles and look at this in Romans chapter 12 and verse 3. Because this verse tells us about self-esteem and it tells us about self-respect. Romans chapter 12, verse 3. It says that it teaches us not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think, what's that word? Soberly. According as God hath dealt to every man the measure of faith. This is powerful. Another version says, be modest in your thinking and judge yourself according to the amount of faith that God has given you. Today's English version. Or another, Peterson says, it's important that you not misinterpret yourself. It's important not to misinterpret yourself. Now, the text indicates that the greater a person's faith is, the less will he think of himself. The greater the person's faith is, the less he will think of himself. As the apostle expresses it, that's what Paul means by he will think soberly. Think less of himself. Faith is a heart appreciation of what it cost the Son of God to die in our place. Amen? Faith is the response of a heart that has been reconciled to God by his love. Such a heart has been so radically changed from self-centeredness to being motivated by God's love. A heart that has been reconciled to God through the cross has no self-centeredness in it whatsoever, no self-love. Hence, no self-esteem. Didn't say no self-respect. Self-respect comes from the cross, interpreting ourselves in view of the cross. On the other hand, pride, the text tells us, you know, pride is an intoxication. You know what I'm saying? Pride is intoxicating. Just as alcohol stimulates a person without building him up, and finally deprives him of reason, so a man loses his head when he gets to hunting for the good traits in his character. And in the end, pride, like alcohol, furnishes no essential nourishment and vitamins for the body in which to build the man up. If a man is to grow strong, he must receive nourishment from a source that is outside of himself, But the empty person lives upon himself and so becomes poorer by what he feeds upon. In other words, this whole self-esteem movement is a self-defeating movement. The more we educate children in our schools in terms of self-love and self-esteem, the less they have of it. And the more they indulge in in, uh, chaotic behavior that destroys their lives. 
Just as alcohol causes a man to stumble in his walk and finally brings him to ruin, so the Proverbs say, Pride goeth before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. No, we do not need to build up human pride. We were born with it. What we need is to point people to the cross of Christ and help them to see the agape love motivation in the heart. Totally different. I think of Sally for years. She had been involved in psychotherapy, and for six months she had been an outpatient at a local mental hospital, and from her perspective, her father had never, never affirmed her while her brothers were continually built up and commended. She was always told, you're never going to do anything right. You'll never amount to anything. And after pouring out this sad story of her difficult childhood, she began to cry and sob. And sometimes she says, I feel like I can't do anything right. I feel like I'm a completely utter worthless person. And after a few moments of silence, her conversationalist responded very slowly and softly by saying, maybe you are worthless. Now you say, well, that sounds like a cruel thing to say. She was startled herself over that. She looked up in anger in her eyes and she said, no one ever told me that before. My psychiatrist always tells me that I'm a good person, that I always should develop a good image, good self-esteem, that I, uh, her conversationalist says, and yeah, has it worked? Has it worked? Well, no, she admitted, but I'm not ready to give up on myself. I'm a valuable human being. Well, dear friends, it's not until we're willing to give up on ourselves that we begin to see where our true, true respect comes from, and that is it's derived from the cross of Christ. And until we hit the rock bottom and recognize that, self not, is not going to die. Evidently, God wants us to interpret ourselves correctly, but to do it soberly with reasonable common sense, anticipating the final judgment when each must appear before the judgment seat of Christ to receive according to that he has done, whether good or bad. The self-esteem approach leaves one very liable in the judgment to a rude shock before the judgment seat, hearing the dear Lord say, Depart from me, when the self-esteemers will arrogantly remonstrate with him and of their glittering careers when they were sure that they had prophesied in his name and had done many wonderful works in his name and heard all men speak well of them, the Lord will be forced to say, I never knew you. Sad. It was. Somebody else apparently was blessing you, but it wasn't me, says Jesus. Well, it sounds corny, but it's biblical. When you seek to interpret yourself rightly... Look around and thank the Lord that a living dog is better than a dead lion. Interpret yourself rightly. When you're invited to a banquet, do not sit down in the first spot, lest one be more honorable than you be invited, and you, with shame, take the lowest place. Uh, that's sanctified common sense, isn't it? It's better to practice it now than at the last. How much does God care about you? As an individual person, how important are you to him? Sure, the biggest problem that children and youth have today is that they don't know who they are. 
Yes, they, don't, they may know their names. They know that their parents gave them those names, but they don't know their true identity. They don't know, sense their own value in God's eyes as individuals, and so they just drift into all sorts of evil. Here's nothing going nowhere, is their idea. The root cause of most crime and degradation, and including teenage promiscuity and pregnancies that later produce a replay of the whole tragic consequences generation after generation. When you were a baby, when you were born, your mother probably counted everything she could see on you. She saw that you had two hands and two feet and two ears and two hands and two feet. And yes, she probably counted your toes too to make sure there were ten. Just to make sure you were normal. And she paid attention to you and you were important in her eyes. But as you grew older, you began to realize that she could not follow you around all of your life recounting your fingers and your toes. You're on your own now. And that's when you began to have problems unless you had learned somehow to believe that you have a heavenly Father who cares for you. For infinitely more, a heavenly Father who cares for you infinitely more than your father or your mother ever did. And that gives you self-respect. And as we spoke about last week, dear friends, part of the gospel is believing the cross And that heals your understanding of who your Heavenly Father is. For those of us who carry a lot of baggage about bad fathers who are jerks to us, the Heavenly Father can heal that by seeing the cross and giving us a new revelation of who He is as our Heavenly Father. One thing your mother never counted on you was how many hairs you have on your head, right? Even though she cared for you, she never cared that much to take an inventory of every hair on your head. But Jesus makes a fantastic statement that must not be brushed off as some kind of an exaggeration. He says that your heavenly Father has counted all of the hairs on your head, even throughout the day when you lose some. So he knows more, something more about you than you do. You don't believe that? Look at Matthew chapter 10. Verses 29 and 30. There it is. And so you must not disbelieve it. Jesus says it. And it has to be so. And so the important point here is not the actual arithmetic. Uh, It wouldn't do you any good to know how many hairs you have on your head anyhow, so don't worry about that, okay? But it's Jesus' way just of saying what David said there in Psalm 139, 17 and 18, how precious are thy thoughts unto me, O God. God thinks of us as precious. How great is the sum of them. If I should count them, they are more in number than the sand. Now, what are you going to do with this? Are you going to believe it? Are you going to disbelieve it? Your happiness here and maybe forever depends on which way you choose. But the gospel of self-esteem is different than the gospel of self-respect. The latter is from the Lord. The former can be a snare. And both of them are mentioned, as we said in Romans 12, 3, I say through the grace given to me to everyone who is among you not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think. In other words, be careful. Don't give yourself an overdose of self-esteem thinking. Thank God for the grace that he was given 
to our beloved brother Paul to see this insight. He will discourage no one. All he knows how to do is to encourage people like you and me because the measure of faith that has been given to all of us is not to think of ourselves more highly than we ought to think. Faith does that. Because if faith grows out of agape love and the cross of Christ, that means there's no self in it. There's no self-esteem in it. So on the other hand, he says, don't dig a hole and crawl into it. You're worth an infinite price. Paul goes on to preach to us now the gospel of self-respect. Through the grace given to me, I say to everyone that is among you, think soberly as God has dealt to each one a measure of faith. Have you spent time in the school of Christ seeking to learn how to think soberly about yourself, still seeking to learn but thankful for whatever measure of sobriety the Lord grants to you? And now I point you to Jesus, who is at the age of 30, got the news that John the Baptist was preaching repentance out there on the Jordan River, and he told his mother, Mary, there he was in Nazareth, Mary, mother, it's time for me to go. It's time for me to launch. I'm going to lay down my saws and my hammers and my chisels. I'm leaving home. I'm never going to touch those tools again. I'm going on my mission now, which my father has told me of. And I've been telling you about this mission of my father ever since I was 12 years of age, and now I am 30. And the first thing that he did was he made a stop at John the Baptist out at the River Jordan, who refused to baptize him. I am ordained to baptize only people who have repented, said the Baptist. And you have no sins to repent of, Jesus. And then Jesus told him how he was taking on the sins of the whole world. Upon himself, upon himself making him guilty of all of them made to be sin for us. And yes, John, I have repented of all of the sins of the world. And so John relented and baptized him. And when Jesus came out of the water dripping wet and he knelt down there on Jordan's banks and he prayed such a prayer as the world had never heard before, nor had the angels in heaven, something wonderful happened. The Father himself answered Jesus verbally, audibly, so that the whole world could hear him, except they didn't recognize the voice. This is my Beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. And you remember, don't you, that a dove descended as the visible Holy Spirit. And as the Father put his arms around Jesus before the whole world, he also put his arms around you and said those words to you. Because Jesus repented of your sins before his baptism. You say, but I'm a sinner. He couldn't do that for me. Well, when you go to a store around here and you pay $10 for something in exchange for an article, you must believe when you put that $10 out there that what you're buying 
is the value of that piece of merchandise, right? You must believe that you're getting an equivalent value for what you're putting on the counter. Well, we read that the Father so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, and you are the world, and the price that the Father paid for you was the infinite Son of God, and he believes that you are equal in value to him. In other words, when the Father thinks of you with all of your sins and all of your unworthiness, he thinks of you as an equivalent value to Jesus. You can spend the rest of your life here now thinking about that, okay? Just spend the rest of your time here on this earth thinking about that and appreciating that. True value. One's true value is rooted in the cross of Christ. The Son of God gave himself for you. That makes you equivalent in value with him. Let that truth sink in. Your security, your value does not arise from within you, from your own self-esteem, from your own love of self. Your true value is only in Christ Jesus. Teach that to our young people, will you? It'll get them out of the cycle of sin. The more they love themselves, the more they'll mire in sin. The more they fall in love with Jesus, the less of that will be in their lives. It will be the motivator for their lives. And so the message of Christ is, by love, serve one another. It therefore means consideration of others instead of oneself. Jesus Christ, who had the greater love than is known among men, said that he came not to be ministered unto, but to minister and to give his life as a ransom for many. The Lord's kind of getting through to my thick skull. And day by day, I realize that my work is a failure. I've been convicted of that, that my work is a failure. Whatever I've considered is my work is a failure. Work is only successful because of Jesus Christ and the cross. All gospel work is only successful because of him. There were two men. One was a very excellent swimmer, and they were watching from dockside. There was a man out there swimming rather long way off from shore, and all of a sudden the man out in the water got into trouble and he began screaming for help and thrashing around in the water. And so Nee turned to his friend excitedly and said, You're a good swimmer. Why don't you go out there and help him? The man's in trouble. Do something. Not yet, his friend said calmly. A few moments passed, and the man in the lake went under the water and came up again, struggling, fighting for air. Save him, save him, Nee said to the strong swimmer on the dock. Not yet, his friend responded. Finally, the man stopped thrashing in the water. The water was all calm. Nee's friend jumped into the water and with a few expert strokes swam to the drowning man and he began to pull him to the shore. Arriving at the shore, Nee's friend administered aid to the drowning man and coughing and sputtering, he was revived. 
But after the incident was all over with, Nee confronted his friend and said, Why did you wait so long to save him? He could have drowned out there. I had no other choice, his friend responded. If I would have gone to him immediately, he would have panicked and pulled me down with him. I had to wait until he stopped kicking. Then I could save him. Are you willing to stop kicking? Join us again next time for the Word of God which will feed the soul. I am committed to bring you the fullness of the gospel as Jesus has revealed it to us in order to prepare a people for his soon coming.